0: Yesterday morning at 9 a.m., I received an email from Archbishop Foley asking me to pray for Israel as it was undergoing attack from Hamas. I didn't know anything about that at the time, and I looked it up, and I'm sure like many of you, kind of been watching the news. When I checked this morning, it looks that there have been at least 700 deaths, a couple thousand more injuries, dozens have been taken hostage, so... Before I begin, I just wanted to, to say a prayer uh, for what's taking place. Let's pray. Father Almighty, you are the King and ruler of the nations. And right now, we ask that you would bring your rule to the situation in Israel, that you would be the defender of the defenseless, that you would restore to families, those who have been taken, that you would bring an end to the violence, that you would protect the innocent. And we ask in faith that not only you would just bring an end to this hostility and attacks that are taking place, but that you would bring genuine peace to a region that has not known it for a long time. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one true Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Does God really care? I know that seems like an odd question for me to ask. I'm the one with the collar, standing up here on a Sunday morning in the middle of a worship service. You would think I would know the answer to this. Of course God cares. God loves us. Isn't that what we say and sing and talk about every time we get together about how much God cares. But even if you know the right answer to that question, even if you believe it, that doesn't mean that sometimes that question doesn't still bother us, that we don't still ask, does God really care? Some of you might remember several years ago, we had a speaker that came to the church, Kelly Capick, and he was, he was sharing his experience that he and his wife have had as she has gone through chronic pain for the last 13 years or so. And when it started, it was very unexpected. Tabitha was in good health. Their kids were in grade school at the time. Their kids were in good health. They were, they were doing well. And then all of a sudden, she was driving home one day from a meeting, and she just had this sharp shooting pain that started going through her leg. And it got so severe, she had to pull over to the side of the road. She couldn't even make it all the way home. Had to call Kelly, ask him to come help. And it took six years to finally get a diagnosis for what was going on in her body. And it turns out that she developed a rare disorder that sometimes known as man on fire syndrome. And like it sounds, it's a disorder that causes debilitating pain. And since that time, her life has not been the happy, healthy, carefree life that she thought she was going to have with her children once they were in college. Since that life, her life and Kelly's life has been this This daily, constant reminder of pain and limitation and suffering. And that's, when Kelly came here, he he shared about how that's really challenged their faith. Not that they're not both committed Christians. They are. In fact, Kelly's Kelly's a professor of theology. He makes his living teaching undergrads all about how much God cares for them and all the ways that God cares. And he believes it. But that doesn't mean that sometimes they still don't ask the question, because if God really cared, if God really cares, then why is Tabitha still in pain? If God really cares, why hasn't he healed her? And Kelly and Tabitha, they're not the only ones to ask this question. Just this past week, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with a young woman in a coffee shop, and she was telling me about some of the real difficulties that she's experienced over the last several years. As loved ones have died, watching a friend go through years of incredible pain and suffering, and that's left her with some very difficult questions, questions that really disturb her. Why? Why did God allow this particular friend to go through that pain? Why would God take this person from our family? Why did he allow that death? She doesn't really have an answer to those questions. And, you know, as I met with her, I didn't really have an answer to those questions either. I couldn't explain why. And I understand where she's coming from. And even though she never put it in these words, I could tell behind her questions, there was that even more fundamental nagging question, does God really care? It's always a comfort to know that you're not the first person to ask this kind of question, not the first person to struggle. And that's one of the reasons I actually, I really enjoy, I really like our passage from the Gospel of John this morning that we read just a moment ago. Because here's a story, here's an occasion when people are wondering and asking, does God really care? And at least on this occasion, Jesus actually does give an answer to the question. It's it's not the answer they expected. It's probably not really the answer we want to hear, but he does answer the question. But before we look at the passage that was read, before we kind of focus on this conversation that takes place with Jesus and Martha, I want to to begin by looking at the context of what's happening here. So I invite you to get your Bibles, your phone or in the pew, open your Bibles to John chapter 11. As we look and see what's taking place. Now here's how John begins his account of these events in verse 1. He says, now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. That's how it always starts, right? Someone is in pain, someone's sick, there's a crisis. And it's really bad, evidently. And Martha and Mary know that. They know it's an emergency because they, they do what any Christian would do. And when a loved one's sick, they, they call on Jesus for help. They send some messengers to him. And, and what do they say? What's the message that they send? Lord, he whom you love is ill. Notice that they don't, they don't actually say any more than that. They don't spell out for Jesus exactly what he needs to do. They don't tell him precisely what they want from him because they shouldn't have to. It's obvious. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Do something about it. You know that if someone is sick, if someone is in trouble, and you have the power to do something about it and you love them, well, then you should do something. And Martha and Mary, they know Jesus has the power. It was just two chapters earlier in John 9, just two chapters earlier, Jesus performed a medical miracle. He restored the eyesight of a man who had been born blind. So they know He can. They know he says he loves Lazarus, so they say, do something. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't do what they're asking him. When the message comes, he doesn't jump up and rush to Lazarus. He doesn't come to his aid. He doesn't heal him. He just waits. Sometimes God acts in ways that seem to make no sense. Because if he really loved us, if he really cared, you'd expect him to come to our aid. If God really cared, then he would find a way to to take away all of those debts that hang over us. If God really cared, then he wouldn't allow your child to get that sick in the first place. If God really cared, then the cancer would have gone into permanent remission. He healed a man born blind. He says he loves us. So why doesn't he act? But then, you know, it gets even stranger. Notice what John says in verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was, stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You catch that? Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and so, because of that, that's why he stuck around and didn't do anything? It's such a strange statement that John makes. I've noticed some contemporary Bible translators actually think it must be wrong, and they correct it in their translations. This is how the good news translates, the good news translation. Here's how it translates these verses. Jesus loved Martha and her sister in Lazarus, yet when he received the news that he was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Well, that makes more sense. Yet, Jesus loved them, yet despite his love for them, Nevertheless, because of some higher, greater purpose that he had, even though he loved them, he didn't come. The only problem is that's not actually what the Greek text says. The message does something very similar. I like this one. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but oddly, (laughs) yeah, I know. But oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on. We can't explain this. At least that makes the point pretty clear. This makes no sense at all. Supposedly, Jesus loves them. We don't know why he's sticking around and not doing anything. It's strange. It's odd. Again, though, that's not actually what the text of John 11 says. The ESV translation that we read this morning um, it, it seems odd what it says, but it actually is very faithful to how the, the basic Greek words, what they mean. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he stayed. If Jesus really loved them, you'd expect him to go. You'd expect him to do something, to go heal Lazarus. But John says that he waits. And he says that evidently the reason he waits is precisely because he loves them. Not that they understand that. That's a hard thing to understand. When Jesus does finally show up to Bethany and Martha hears that he's there and she runs out to greet him, what'd she say? We read it just a moment ago. It's in verse 21. She runs out. She doesn't say, hello, Rabbi. It's good to see you. She says, Lord, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's hard to miss the accusation in those words. Lord, where were you when he was sick? You should have come. You could have saved him. We sent a messenger. Why weren't you here? Don't you care? Same thing happens when Jesus sees Mary. Keep in mind, this is Mary. Mary, the one who loves Jesus. Mary, who when Jesus comes to Bethany, she insists on sitting right at his feet and listening to his every word. Mary, who has washed his feet with her hair, she's so devoted to him. Mary has trusted Jesus and he's let her down. So when Jesus goes and sees Mary... The first words out of her mouth are the exact same words as those of her sister. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even the other mourners in the house, they don't really have a personal history with Jesus like Martha and Mary and Lazarus do. But even they can't make heads nor tails of what Jesus was thinking. Some of them, when they see Jesus weeping, they say, See how he weeps. See how much he must have loved Lazarus. But then how do the others respond? Could not he he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You say he loves him. This wonder worker. Well, couldn't he have done something about it? That's the question at the heart of this story. It's a question that, Crops up in a lot of our lives on different occasions. God says that He cares. He says that He loves us. But if that's true, then why the inaction? Why doesn't He do something? The first answer that Jesus gives to this question is a bit unsettling. It's right after the messengers have come to tell Him the news that Lazarus is ill. And Jesus says something strange to his disciples. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And you know, that's always kind of bothered me that he says that. Because it sounds as if, it sounds as if what he's saying is, well, there's a set of priorities here. And yeah, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, their good is important. Their well being is important, but there's a higher priority, which is my glory. And anytime these, these two priorities come into conflict, well, my glory is going to win out. And if it means that Lazarus has to be sick and maybe die, and Martha and Mary have to grieve for a while, well, as long as I get glory out of it, it's okay. You could take Jesus' words that way, which would be horrible. And we know that's not the character of God. And it's certainly not what Jesus is actually trying to say here. You have to remember that when Jesus talks about his glorification, what he's talking about is the public revelation of who he really is. When Jesus is glorified, it means that all others see the true nature and character and being of God. That's Jesus's glorification. So what Jesus is saying here is not, well, I'm not gonna go help Lazarus because I'm just more concerned with getting some fame for myself. What Jesus is saying is, this moment, this occasion, this sickness, this is going to be used by God to publicly reveal who I really am and just how deep and how far my love goes and what my love looks like. This is so that the son of man might be glorified, so that the son of God might be glorified, so you can know who I really am. So that's the backdrop. And then you get to this conversation between Jesus and Martha. I've already mentioned how Martha starts off the conversation. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she goes a little further. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Notice again, Martha's not even telling Jesus what she wants from him. Just like when she sent that messenger. She doesn't actually explain what she wants him to do. And she doesn't really have to. It's obvious. Martha just wants her brother back. She just just wants to have him around. And that's what we all want, isn't it? We just want those we love to live as long as possible. We want to avoid debilitating pain, to avoid death for at least as long as we possibly can. 10 years ago, there was a great there's a, a prominent surgeon named Atul Gawande and he published this book called Being Mortal. And it's all about um, his observations about, about attitudes toward death and dying and specifically how death and dying are, are cared for and, and how they're approached by people in the modern medical industry. And one of his main points is he says, today, today, our, today our attitude toward death is primarily, if not exclusively, one just of avoidance at all cost. We just want to stay alive as long as possible. And he says, and that's how medical practitioners are taught to relate to those who are dying, to dying patients. That if there is a treatment or if there is a surgery, no matter how costly No matter how risky, no matter the kind of physical toll it might take, as long as there's a chance to keep someone alive, you do it. And I'm not trying to say that to criticize the medical industry or suggest that people shouldn't undergo risky surgeries and treatments. Sometimes that's exactly what you should do. But I do think that what Atul Gawande observes about America and our attitudes toward death, it's very, very similar to what you see with Martha here. What Martha wanted, she just wanted her brother to be healed. And she knew that he would die again eventually. Martha didn't expect otherwise. She knew that maybe that would add 10, maybe 20, maybe 30 years if he's really lucky to Lazarus' life but at least he would be around for a little while longer. And who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to live as long and as pain-free, as comfortable a life with their loved ones as they possibly can? And if God really cared, why doesn't he give it to us? You might remember several weeks ago when Dean Paul first started this series on the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. You might remember how he, he noted that when, John, when Jesus says these things in John, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, that Jesus is not simply making a declaration about who he is. He's not simply telling us who he is. That every time Jesus says one of these things, he is almost always At the same time, posing a question to us. What do you want? What do you want from me? That's the first question Jesus asks in the Gospel of John. What is it that you're seeking? What do you want from me? And more often than not, what he's doing is he's teaching us that he is in fact here to give us exactly what we want. But he is here to give it to us in a way that far exceeds what we could ever even think to ask. And that's what's happening in this conversation with Mary, with Martha. When Martha tells him that he could have saved Lazarus and kept her brother alive, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And you can almost hear Martha sort of sighing when he says this, like as if Jesus is just offering some sort of cliche, pious religious consolation. Yes, I know. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus isn't done because Martha doesn't really fully understand what it is that he's saying. She still seems to think that the best that she could hope for, what she really wants is just to have as much and as long a life with her brother as she can. But Jesus wants her to know that he is offering so much more than that. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Which is to say, whoever dies who believes in me will live in such a way that they can't even possibly imagine what that is like right now. That there is a form of life that is so powerful, so profound, so filled with love and stability and security, so unable to ever be taken away from you that we cannot possibly comprehend it even though he die, yet shall he live. But then Jesus says there is more. Not only will anyone who believes in me live even though he dies, everyone who believes in me will never die, which seems like a strange thing to say. But what he means is what it is that you really fear from death when you think about death, that it somehow is the final end. It's the closing of the curtain, that now forever you are being cut off from those you love, that that's the, that's the end of your experience of love and joy and happiness. That's why we fear death. And Jesus is saying, those who believe in me, those who believe in me need never fear this kind of death. Because for those who believe in Jesus, death is not the end. For those who believe in Jesus, death is, as as the poet John Donne said, one short sleep past. We wake eternally, and death shall be no more. And then Jesus asked Martha a question. Do you believe this? Sometimes I think we misunderstand that question. Because sometimes we think that, the word believe just refers to someone accepting a proposition. As if what Jesus is asking Mary, Martha is, do you believe this doctrine that I'm giving you, this religious doctrine about the resurrection? But you have to keep in mind that the word believe here, that it's a word that always means not just accepting a proposition, but more fundamentally, it's a word that refers to trust. So what Jesus is asking Martha is not, Martha, do you believe what I'm telling you? What Jesus is asking her is, Martha, do you trust me? Even now, as your brother is in the grave, do you trust me? And that's the question that he asks of us as well. Like Martha, we're all gonna face hardship, we will face trial. If you live long enough, you will face many losses. And you might be tempted to think that God just doesn't care. Or you might be tempted to to demand that God give an account and give you a reason why. Why this particular loss? Why this suffering? Notice though that Jesus doesn't answer any of those questions for Martha. You know, Jesus never explains himself to Martha and Mary. Not once. He doesn't tell them why he stayed around. He doesn't tell them why he didn't come. He doesn't tell them why he didn't heal Lazarus. And chances are, chances are he's not gonna answer that question for you either. He's probably not gonna tell you why. But that doesn't mean he doesn't care. Jesus cares more than we can possibly imagine. He knows that the best that we think we can hope for is a long, prosperous, happy life with our friends and family. But he didn't come to give us our best life now. That wasn't Jesus' purpose. He came to give us something far, far greater, something that we cannot comprehend to give us a life that can never be taken away. Jesus came ultimately to give us a kind of life that we can't even begin to imagine. This week, as I was reflecting on this story, I couldn't help but remember some of the times I've heard it read and talked about. It's often used at funerals. You might have heard it at a funeral before, I have a very distinct memory of my dad standing up at his sister's funeral and it was a very unexpected death and it was not in a church, not in a terribly religious family, but standing up at his sister's funeral and talking about this story in John 11 and the comfort that it gives. It's a story that I myself have used at funerals. And there's a good reason for that. It's not just because this is a story of Jesus at a funeral, so that seems to make it very fitting. The reason is because in a moment when grief or loss or pain is very near, and when you have a lot of unanswered questions, this is a story that reminds us that even in the face of that, God does indeed care. When, when the mourners see Jesus weeping, they marvel at his love, see how much he loved. But the good news of John 11 isn't just that Jesus cares so much about us, that God loves us so much that he weeps for us. The good news is not just That Jesus cares so much that he is willing to be with us in our grief. The good news is that he has come to put an end, a final end to everything that worries and plagues us. He has come to rescue us from what we fear. He has come to wipe away every tear, to restore everything we have lost. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you trust him? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.